Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Confident Faith, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 29, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Remaining Faithful in a Condemned Culture. I know the title that I've given to this sermon is a bit ominous, Remaining Faithful in a Condemned Culture. You know, that title speaks of the ultimate collapse of all human civilizations. Eventually, God himself will call an end to the city of man. Civilizations of this world are all not just going to slowly and gradually pass away, but Judgment Day will come and bring them all to a sudden and abrupt halt. The book of Revelation compares this day to the collapse of Babylon. And if you don't know how Babylon fell, it fell during the time of the prophet Daniel. You might recall that Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, and you know, if I might digress here for just a moment, I think the Bible is being quite generous with a man by calling him King Belshazzar. That's because the real king of Babylon during that time was a man named Nabonidus, and Belshazzar was his son. When Nabonidus was off to war, Belshazzar served as virtual king in his absence. You know, kind of like when you have a substitute teacher in school, he or she was your teacher until the real one came back. Now, Belshazzar was an arrogant and disdainful lad, and and God was paying attention. And one day as he was giving a party, his dad off on a vital military campaign, and young Belshazzar called in the holy vessels from the destruction of the Jewish temple, and they all got drunk and drinking and profaning God from vessels dedicated to holy service. A hand appeared on the wall and wrote, and as it wrote, it would eventually tell him that God had weighed his deeds and found him wanting. And while the prophet Daniel was in the room explaining the message on the wall, at that very moment, the Persians had found a secret passageway into the city, and their troops were already in control while Belshazzar was drunk at a party, and the city fell with all the suddenness that the Old Testament prophets had indicated. Now, getting back to the book of Revelation, that's how the cities of man will fall. While they're toasting their accomplishments, destruction will come upon them. Listen to Revelation 18, 1 to 2. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then later in the chapter, down to verse 17, For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. When the empires of men collapse, the collapse will come first at the command of God, and second, it will come with such suddenness that it will be impossible to escape. Now, to the issue of the actual collapse of the city of man, I'll reserve that discussion until tomorrow, but today, we want to examine what it means for God's people to be faithful while they're living in Babylon. Does this sound like an overwhelmingly negative message? Well, I I suppose it is. And to be faithful to the Bible, these kinds of messages are simply a part of the biblical material. But you should know that Bible teachers always have this problem. You see, on the one hand, we teach that the future is as bright as the promises of God. And on the other hand, we teach that there is coming a great day when this world will be condemned. And it's the latter part of the equation, the part of condemnation that always seems in bad taste and polite company. But just to set the record straight, I'm convinced today's message is indeed an optimistic one. What this is really all about is how to make a real and lasting impact on a world that is racing for the abyss. 
know, when we last left off, we studied Genesis 18, really a most remarkable chapter. God has come to Abraham in human form, and God, along with two angels, have sat in Abraham's tent eating his food, and then promising him that by this time next year, at long last, Sarah would give birth to his son. God was going to fulfill all his promises. And then God and Abraham go for a walk. God determines since Abraham is his chosen man to bring his blessing to the world, he will not hide from Abraham what he is about to do. He will destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that must have existed in the southern end of the Dead Sea. And Abraham is horrified and immediately begins to plead with God for the righteous men and women who happen to be living there. And in the process of an extended negotiation, God tells him that if 10 righteous people are found in the city, he will spare it. Now, of course, there are in this passage two people who impact their culture. And the first, obviously, is Abraham. Remember, he has been called by God to bless the nations. And so it would seem, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's presence in Canaan has had some impact. And I say this because at the outset, there's a natural point of application to this passage. We, believers, are called upon by Christ himself to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And I want us to know that we, the people of God, are to make an impact for good in this world. But I don't want us to be under any illusions. The world's not waiting for you to do something good for it. It's not an easy task. There are many people who think they will be a force for good and a force for God in this world, and some succeed and some don't. You might remember William Wilberforce was able to bring an end to slavery in England. But others, like Jeremiah the prophet, was unable to change the trajectory of his culture. And so remember, I said that there are two people involved here. The first was Abraham and his call to bless the nations, but the second person in the equation is a man who failed to make the difference he wanted to make, although he dearly wanted his life to count. We're going to talk about all of the reasons why he failed. And of course, I'm speaking about Lot and his inability to make an impact for good in Sodom and Gomorrah. In essence, I'm going to say that he failed because he failed to be what God had wanted him to be. Do you remember Lot? He's Abraham's nephew, the son of his dead brother. Lot followed Abraham into the land of promise and had no doubt heard of all of the promises of God. And furthermore, Lot now lived in a land that Abraham and Lot had divided among themselves. And while we consider Lot, I'm going to be referring back to Daniel in Babylon. See, in his early years, his impact was considerable, speaking into the spiritual life of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. But in the end, please notice that Babylon never stopped being Babylon. It was the city of man, the city that from the days of the building of the tower to the present day would continue to be a city of rebellion to her maker and a city that in the end would exemplify the sudden destruction of the human experiment of life without God. And before we read the account of Genesis 19, I want us to look at what the Apostle Peter said about Lot and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm reading 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. See, I see several things in what Peter says. Now, first of all, he tells us that what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to what is going to happen to the whole world. So please do not see this account as somehow limited to that place in that time period. This is the story of the future of the whole world. And if you believe that, both the reasons for the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the actual judgment itself is startling and it's terrifying. Now, secondly, it is a story about God being able to rescue the righteous and condemn the guilty. So much can be said about that. And thirdly, it's a story of what happens to the soul of a righteous man when he lives in a land of perversion day after day without taking proper care to guard his own soul well. And finally, this is a story of a great warning of those who live by the flesh and of those who simply will not bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So let me say it again. This message today, well, I don't think it's a negative message at all. But please note that this earth is indeed facing judgment, and it is racing toward the abyss. The Antichrist will come. But Jesus Christ is also coming, and he will reign in the end forever and ever. The story does not end in despair. This is the story of hope. And so on the basis of this, this message is dedicated to those who, like our Heavenly Father, love this world and seek to see others saved from the judgment that is to come. Will we make an impact? Yeah, we can, if we learn not to compromise with evil. Will we halt the judgment to come? No, we will not, but take hope. Celebrate 60 years of Back to the Bible Canada in 2018. 60 years of ministry that took place because of your prayers and support. In celebration, we'll be announcing a number of events, activities, programs, firsts, and special resources. The first of those is our 60th anniversary series with founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. I know you'll be impacted by the sound teaching and inspired by the heart of Theodore Epp for this ministry and the ongoing faithfulness to his original mission and vision. And as our gift to begin the celebrations, we want to send you this very special five-message series for free. Just ask. And for those who can remember 30, 40, 50 years of ministry ago, there may be also some special moments to stir your memory. So call for your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Genesis 19, 1-3. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your own way. 
They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. You know, the two men that came to Lot are the two angels that accompanied God in the visit to Abraham. God does not go to Lot's house as he did to Abraham's tent. Rather, he sends his messengers, and the account now moves to a picture of what Sodom, the city of man, is actually all about. Now, the best way to begin the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is to begin by talking about Lot and describing him as best we can. What kind of a man was he? We know that at some time in the past, he was involved in a dispute with Abraham. His herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen were quarreling over who gets which pasture land. And it was Abraham who took the initiative and allowed Lot to take his choice as to where to go. And then Lot seized the initiative and chose the best land for himself, leaving Abraham to choose second best. And that in itself seems to reflect Lot's character. From my vantage point, he doesn't honor his uncle at all. And then sometime later, when Lot was taken captive by foreign and invading kings, Abraham again extended himself, putting his own inheritance at risk for the sake of his nephew. And so seen from one perspective, we might think of Lot as a kind of a pampered nephew who thought nothing of taking advantage of his uncle's kindness and generosity. But if that's all that we see, I think we're selling him short. Remember, Peter, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls him a righteous man. And Peter's not suggesting that Lot is perfect, but the term righteous no doubt refers to the fact that Lot trusts in the same God as his uncle Abraham trusts. Lot never lost sight of the promises of God given to his uncle and no doubt must have thought of himself in some fashion as an inheritor of the blessings that flowed through his uncle. And furthermore, Lot sought to conduct himself by doing what was right. However we understand Lot, his strengths, and also his very many weaknesses, let's at the very least think of him as a man actively involved in trying to make a difference in his culture. See, I want you to note where he is when the two angels from God arrive in the city of Sodom. He's at the gateway of the city when the two angels get there. The sun is setting, and because we know the end of the story, it's somehow eerie, isn't it? The sun is, in fact, setting on the cities of the plain. God's judgment is at hand. No one in the city knows that, not even Lot. Externally, it appears that things are as they have always been. Nothing untoward is happening. Lot's sitting at the gateway of the city, and that's significant because in ancient cities, that's where the elders and the officials sat on stone benches to adjudicate legal matters and to give direction to a city under the king. You don't just hang out there. The city gate is a place of honor. So I want you to imagine Lot a little bit like Daniel. Both of them held political office in desperately wicked cities. Lot in Sodom and Daniel in Babylon. Both served under kings who were despots. Both of them realized that their role in politics could make a significant difference. And that's who Lot is. He's in the seat of government and he is God's man. Please notice also that Lot is involved in ministering to the needs of others. Lot is completely different from the people of this city. See, the men of that city would rape any stranger who came there, but Lot, a righteous man, offers hospitality. He knows the danger for strangers, and he will not simply mind his own business and go on his own way. He, it turns out, is the only man who actually cares. And do you see, 
Lot's not the self-indulging individual we thought he was, ready to take advantage of his uncle and serve himself and only care about himself. An elder of the city who knows the wickedness of his city is watching out for strangers and ensuring that they're kept safe. He's far from self-serving. He indeed is looking to bless the stranger and the alien. Perhaps he's learned more from Abraham than we ever imagined. Now, interestingly enough, the two men whom we know are angels actually resist Lot's invitation and allow Lot to easily get off the hook. It will be dangerous to entertain these men. Lot could have easily obliged and saved himself a lot of trouble. But Lot insists. He's deeply concerned with the welfare of innocent strangers. He must protect them from this city. Lot is not about himself. He's about others. He wants to make a difference. He is involved in the needs of others. Notice also that Lot does not participate in the immoral deeds of his culture. Peter told us that, but as we examine the text in Genesis, we'll come to the same conclusion that Peter reached. The entire city of Sodom is immoral. There will be no ten righteous people in that city. Indeed, there will not even be one, that is, except for Lot. In fact, as we read through this account, it becomes very clear that the entire city remembers that he is an alien and that when he wants to protect the strangers, they condemn Lot for wanting to play a judge. city knows he has different standards, and they hate him for it. Just like Daniel and the wise men of Babylon, the enemies of Lot no doubt were quite prepared to plot his ruin whenever he got in their way. Look again at verse 3. The two strangers tell Lot they need no lodging, that they are more than prepared to spend the night in the public square. And so, verse 3, but he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. See, when you read this, you might remember the words of Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember that I said that on the one hand, Lot is a righteous man, but on the other hand, he is a compromised man. I say that because from my vantage point, Lot is not lavish around the things of God. Abraham entertained with a tender calf and curds and milk. Lot merely brings out some bread without yeast. He, he is not a lavish man. I want you to listen to Jesus' words, and they're recorded in Luke 16, 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See, in other words, the little things are money and possessions. The big things, says Jesus, have to do with eternity and, and eternal dwellings. And that's how it was with Lot. See, I want to compare Genesis 13, 12 with uh, Genesis 19, verse 3. Genesis 13, 12 says, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, Genesis 19, 3, there we learn that when the angels came, they entered Lot's house and the house is right inside the city. You see, the tent of Lot is now gone. He belongs to Sodom. You see what's happened? Lot knew that Sodom was an exceedingly wicked city. And so Lot went towards Sodom because of the money, but he was determined to keep some distance. And somewhere along the way, Lot went from living near Sodom to living in Sodom. You see, the difference between Daniel and Lot is that Daniel opened his window and prayed toward Jerusalem, and Lot seems to have closed his window and lived within Sodom. Daniel lived in Babylon because he was forced to. 
Lot lived in Sodom because he saw economic advantage there. Daniel longed to go home. Lot was home. That is the test for all of us. Where is your treasure? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you know why some of us have difficulty being generous? Because God knows that our hearts are in the condemned city of man. Oh, we disapprove of the morals of the city of man. We would never live like they do. We practice a different set of values. We wring our hands and we wag our heads and we complain about how bad things are. We're absolutely attached, however, to the city of man and we're not lavish. We may give, but not too much. After all, who can afford that? We spend thousands on self and hundreds on God. And when we're like that, we, like Lot, are righteous and compromised. We want to make a difference, but the inner state of our affections has compromised our soul. So how should we be? We can't leave the condemned city of man, but we need to be like Daniel. Open your window and long for heaven, the new Jerusalem. Deny yourself things, but lavish things on God and his kingdom. Prepare to sacrifice on your needs, but go overboard on kingdom needs. And when we stand in heaven next to martyrs and missionaries and men and women who have fought the bloodstained battle of the cross of righteousness and truth in the kingdom of God at great personal cost, when we stand next to the nail-pierced hands of Jesus our Lord, we must not be ashamed. And that's how to be like Daniel and not like Lot. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray, help us to get insight into what your spirit is saying regarding our relationship to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. John, you've made some comparison between Daniel and Lot, and I guess to make it very personal for me, how do you suggest that I work or, or strive to keep the window open towards God? Yeah, we know that when uh, when Daniel opened the window and he uh, you know, he would pray in the direction of Jerusalem. It was so that his affections would be there. So I would think that we should open up our Bibles on a regular basis every day. Just make that a part of your life and ask God to give you an affection for the land that he has promised us. And we just make that a part of our prayer so that, you know, when we go about the rest of our lives in which we have to take care of business and bills and all the different relationships that that are about our lives, we have simply begun our day with our window open towards Jerusalem. So um, keep that focus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more of the Confident Faith series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Do you ever wonder how your giving to Back to the Bible Canada makes a difference? Shona said Back to the Bible Canada continues to bring a drifting world back to God's Word. Don't ever change. Kim said, not only do I find the program enjoyable, it goes way beyond that to be a sustaining ministry for my husband and I, keeping us in touch daily with the scriptures. Mark wrote, I'm working through singing the Lord's song in a strange land. It is both encouraging and terribly convicting. I suppose that is what truth always does in our hearts. Jacob said the teaching of Dr. Neufeld is so needed. Thank you for not being afraid to tell us as it says. This is the tip of the iceberg as men, women, young and old tap into the Bible. Resources provided with your support. 
thank you and please keep it up. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.